The following audio content is a talk given at the Inn, a college ministry of University Presbyterian Church in Seattle, Washington. For more information, please visit our website, theinnseattle.org. Love is a big deal, right? You know, um, you can be really religious and miss this whole thing. You can go to church week after week and miss the main thing. And, and it seems to me that one of the great principles of living, uh, the main thing is to keep the main thing the main thing, right? Because we're constantly letting things that aren't the main thing become the main thing, and we get off track, and we get confused, and we think that religion, a bunch of shoulds, a bunch of do's and don'ts, a bunch of stuff that has to do with what we consider holy or different uh, takes over. You know, and so we can really miss out on what Jesus really wants the most from us. And so one of the biggest questions you can ask yourself is how well set up am I for friends? You know, um, how, positioned I, how positioned am I to be a good friend? And how does that work out in my life? Because that's the real test. You know, I... I just thought about this this morning, and there's a number of friends here that I love to be with and hang out with, and some of you have, I've, I've not kn- known at all. But, um, you know, Jesus said the, the main thing, the main thing is to love God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and everybody who listened to him because he was being tested by a religious person or Orthodox Jew, an expert in the law, right? He's being tested by this person, and this person recites something every day. It's called the Shema. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart and with all thy soul and all thy strength. So when Jesus quoted that as being the greatest commandment, every one of those Orthodox Jews is going, yeah, that's right. He's got it. You know, check. And then Jesus surprised them. He threw a curveball. He, he, he said, and the second is like it. He didn't ask for a second. He says, what's the greatest commandment in the law? And Jesus throws a curveball at him and says, the second. He goes, whoa, 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 time out. I didn't say second. But Jesus wants him to know that he can't understand what love, loving God is about until he understands the second. And he says, the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. Here's the deal. There's a lot of people who love to go to religious meetings. They love to go to the inn. They love to go to Mars Hill. They love to go to city church. They love to go to whatever. And they love to raise their arms. And they love to dance and sing worship songs. And they love to go, go, God, I love you. Whoopee, God. I'm into you, God. And then they can't stand people. They have a hard time loving their own family. They have a hard time really having any friends. They love having quiet times. They love meditating. But that's, see, Jesus is saying, if you want to know what it means to love God, then love a person. Because God feels the squeeze when you hug somebody else. That's why he said when when Saul, the, the great apostle who became Paul, when he was in his rampage against the people of the way, he gets knocked off his donkey by the presence of Jesus And Jesus says, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Because he was persecuting the church, and Jesus is feeling the pain. 
Or at the great judgment scene in, in Matthew 25, when, when the judge, this great merciful judge, says, as you treated the least of these, you treated me that way. As you did unto the least of these, you did unto me. So what we do to people is what we do to God. That's what God feels, is how we treat people. So love is a big deal. You can't separate the horizontal, the way you treat people, from the way you treat God. So love, the way we love others, the way we practice that in our families, the way we practice that in our living contexts, is really what it means to love God. Let's not get hyper-spiritual about loving God. Love is really practical. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. He is into us. He is, God is so into the world. He's so into humans. We are his image bearers. We absolutely are like him. Okay? Like God. So the way we treat another person is really impacting God. So that's why love is a big deal. It's, and Jesus made it very clear. He says, oh, please, I only give you one new command. I give you one commandment. Just love one another. It wasn't a new suggestion. He said a new commandment. So that's a big deal. This whole love concept of how we get along with people, how we uh, communicate in community is a big deal. I, the older I get, the more I think it is a big deal. Um, <clears throat> because we've done it so poorly. I mean, families breaking apart. I mean, it's the weirdest thing. I do weddings. Some of you went to the wedding I did last week with Luke French. You know, and so, you know, you're there. And this happens all the time. People are doing weddings, and I, I get them in front of me. I get the best seat in the house. I'm up front. I got my notes. You know, I'm doing my, my spiel. And they're up there, goo-goo eyes. Sometimes their voice cracks. And they tell each other, I, I commit my life to you. And then about eight months later, they're calling me going, we can't even talk to each other. What? I thought you just said, you know, it's, it's the weirdest thing. 50% of marriages are falling apart after they promised they would be faithful. And the 50 that don't fall apart, only maybe 20% of them are happy. And everybody wants to get married. Because love is hard and it challenges us and it takes us to places where there has to be stark honesty and realness and all kinds of things where we need God's help. So love is a big deal. It's a really big deal. And so talking about it here, I just want to congratulate you. I came across a word that changed my life about two years ago. I've talked with this about to the Vision 16 community. Absolutely revolution, riveted me. It was like a seismic event for me. And... Uh, the word, I was in Tanzania at a conference, um, Jesus conference there, people from all over the world. I was one of the <clears throat> minority there. And uh, I think because of that, my antennas were really high. When you're in a, I don't know how often you've ever been a minority. Most of us here are the majority culture, majority race, right? So we live with things that we don't have to be, we don't have to work as hard because we're just walking along in the context of everybody, every, this is the way it's done. But when you're in the minority, all of a sudden your, your antennas go up and you, you listen differently. And if, so I'd really recommend being, putting yourself in situations where you get to be the minority. It's, it's a privilege because you do learn. So my antennas are real high. And this speaker from South Africa gets, gets up there 
And he just, it's literally like he says about four words, and in those four words is this particular word. And it was the word, it's a Zulu word that, um, that means it's Ubuntu. Ubuntu means I am because we are. And it was like somebody picked me up out of the room and placed me in my own little conference library room where I was by myself and all the implications of the word Ubuntu began to hit me upside the face and I, you know, was ducking and pretty soon I just stopped ducking and I just let it hit me. And I realized that most of my life has been shaped by a different paradigm, a paradigm of America, of a paradigm of my culture, a paradigm that says I am because I have, or I am because I do, or I am because I achieve, or I am because I think I'm smart. I am because I, you know, But this idea that I am because we are, that my I is defined by my we, totally, it was like, oh my gosh, I've been married a long time. I've been living a long time. I've been processing a long time. But, you know, most of my life had been, you know, the four B's or five B's, you know, I'm defined by my bucks. You know, how how much money do you have? That's That's a big American dream deal. It's like I am what I own. Two, I am by my brains. That's a big college deal. You know, you judge yourself constantly by your grade point average or by some comparison. Or I am because I uh, have a babe. That's the third B. I'm somebody if I've got the right person with me. But if I don't have the right person with me, am I really somebody? I'm I'm all for relationships. You know how that becomes a trap. Or I am because I got the right body. You know, I got the brawn or I got the beauty. You know, that's a big deal, body image. So we have a lot of pressure there. I am all these things that the world tries to squeeze me into a mold. But I never really think, I mean, I, this is just, I'm not saying you're not this way, but I wasn't in, in, in many ways thinking I am because we are. Um, and um, But then I started thinking about it and I realized, you know, this whole understanding of our faith is of a God who's known as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. That the very existence of life at the very core of the universe is community. And that the Father would say to the Son, I am because we are. And the Spirit would say to the Father, I am because we are. The very nature of God, and we're made in His image in the sense that I'm built for relationships. At the very core of my being, that's the image that I'm built in. And so I just begin to realize this is the way life is meant to be lived, that I don't define myself in any other way but by the core of my relationships. And um, the idea of living for others and with others. You know, when I was pre-Christ, before my um, 18th birthday, I gave my life to Jesus a long time ago when I was 18. Prior to that, my relationships were dictated by my interests. I was a basketball player. I was a a lot of different things, musician, student government kind of guy. 
my friends directly related to what I did. If, I, if they weren't into some sport or into music or some, something that I did, then they probably didn't interest me as a friend because all my friends were dictated by my identity and what I was interested in. Okay, so they were useful acquaintances. Um, you know, it's interesting because there was a, a great Jewish theologian by the name of Martin Buber who wrote, a, who wrote a phenomenal book. It's very hard to read. Sometimes you read it and you're kind of thinking, well, I have no idea what he just said. I just read five pages. I have no idea what I just read. You ever had those kind of books? Well, this book, he's, he postulates the idea that in a post-industrial society, um, we have turned relationships into functions. So I relate to persons because they are a function in my life. So when I go to the grocery store, the checker isn't really a person. They're a checker who does a function for me. They don't really have a family. They don't really have needs. They don't really care. They are a checker. They're a function. So, and it's not bad that they're a function, but here's what we, we, we hyperextend that into our life so that everybody in our life, to a degree, is a function, and we use people. And so he says that that's an I-it relationship. When a person is a means to an end, you get what you want from that person. You hear it all the time. You ask people, what is a friend? Well, a friend is somebody I just, they just meet my needs. Well, what's that? That's an it. You know? And God didn't make it's. But that's the way we tend to think. As long as you might meet my needs, I feel good about myself when I'm with you, then you're a friend. If, if you stop doing that, then it's, it's kind of suspect. See, and what Buber says is he says that, that there is a different kind of relationship. It's called an I-thou relationship where the person becomes an end in themselves, not a means to an end. And you, the value of them, you take a genuine interest in them, not because they have something to give you, but because they are worthy of your interest as a child of God. And you treat them as an end in themselves. And what Buber says is that's an I-thou relationship. And he says the thou, the transcendent God of all the universe, meets that relationship. And you ever, have you ever been in those kind of contexts where, for whatever reason, the level of your conversation goes to a place where you're genuinely interested in another person, and you walk away going, man, that was special. There was something holy about that. It seemed like God was there. And this happens whether you're a believer or not. This, is not, this happens to any person when you treat a person as an end in themselves, as somebody worthy of your life and a service. Something holy happens there. So... I didn't know what that was about. But as I got involved after I became a Christian, I began to be around people who began to teach me that the, in, that the idea was not program or success. The idea was generally it was people over program. Don't use people to get your way. Love people. And, and so I began to learn this. But there was a different level about when I was 25. I came across a guy named Doug Coe who began to talk about something I'd never conceived of, and that was what he called covenant relationships. And a covenant relationship, I thought, was just marriage. It was between a man and a woman, and they made a covenant, and it was public, and they swore before God and these witnesses that they would be faithful. But he began to talk about it to me like that's something you can do with any friend. You can say to that friend from your heart, 
I love you. And I want to, I want to be faithful as a friend. No matter where you are or what you do, I want to be faithful as a friend. And I'd never thought that guys could do that between us or, you know, I didn't, it was like, you're kidding me. That's kind of, isn't that, oh, is that okay? Can you, you know, but I watched what began, was happening in this. You see, most relationships are like this. There's a couple things that happen. One is they're dependent upon proximity. Once you move, the relationship's really in jeopardy. So you've got to be in the same proximity. The other one is you have to have shared interests. If I, I was in a rock band in junior high, the Panics, you know, gray pinstripe shirts. All right, I was the piano player. We, we, we played a lot of uh, I played at the local, the local dances, and my girlfriend, Nancy Quackenbush, came once in a while. Um, okay, so, so I'm in this band, Long Hair, and uh, that was like eighth grade, and we, it was really fun. And then I decided, I'm going to play basketball. I got my hair cut. I lost about 20 friends overnight. Because... Because we defined our friendship by shared activity. It was weird, but it was very stark. I went from this crowd to this crowd in a matter of one haircut. Because the crowd that I was with didn't like short hair. See, it's weird. So we we have this proximity shared interest kind of uh, uh, paradigm built into us. And think if I so a covenant friendship is something that is is it goes beyond proximity. And it goes beyond shared interest. It says, I will be faithful regardless. The other thing that happens in relationships is they're kind of like revolving doors. I'll be your friend until, if you keep disappointing me, I, won't, I, won't, I can't keep doing this. And so because we're human, we, by nature, tend to disappoint each other. I've never met anybody that's perfect and that won't make a mistake. And uh, I've never met a per- you know, been in a perfect church, and neither of you. And if you ever find one, don't go to it because you'll ruin it. You know, so would I. All right. So um, you're going to go through a disappointment cycle, a disillusionment cycle. This happens in marriage big time. You get you get married, and you, all of a sudden you realize this isn't so great. You go through disillusionment because you hurt each other. You don't mean to. Sometimes you hurt each other just because you see things differently. But you go through disappointment. And so what happens, it seems like in our relationships, they're like revolving doors. And it's the weirdest thing. People go through 80, 90 years of life, and they can say, I've had four friends my whole life. That's because they just keep going through these disappointment cycles, and the friends just keep spinning out. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Then what happens, they, 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 they get my age, and they start going back to their high school reunions and thinking, okay, I'm past my ego stage, and I'll actually like you now. And it's, it, but, but, you know, it doesn't have to be that way. And that's what I learned from Doug Coe when I was about 25. And I began to experiment with what would it mean for me to say to some of my friends, I'm going to be your friend no matter where you go in this world and no matter what you do, I am going to be faithful as a friend. And I want to raise my kids with your kids. And I want our lives to be absolutely connected. And so we did that. I started doing that. And I can't begin to tell you the impact, <clears throat> the positive impact that has had on my life. Because it's really happened. People ask Marilyn and me, they said, well, you know, what's the deal with the Vansel family? How come all your kids are pretty cool and they like each other and they love Jesus? They all love Jesus and they're really good, great 
wonderful people. And I can only say, it's weird, isn't it? You know, how did that happen? You know, they've made us look like good parents, so it is, which is, we know there's a better answer than that. Here's the deal. I had a lot of friends that loved my kids. I mean, if my kids messed up, my friends were on them. Because I had a bunch of people that we just absolutely said, what happens to you happens to me. I started understanding this. Now, the Ubuntu thing took me to a new level. But there was this sense of um, depth in relationships. You know, here's the deal. A lot of us think that we can only have that kind of relationship with a few people. Maybe one, maybe two. And I think that's, that is a lie. Now, I can say mathematically, you'd kind of go, okay, that, yeah, I can understand why you know, time-wise and energy-wise, circumstance-wise, you're going to be limited. But here's what really happens. It's interesting. When you get to know one person, one other person, really, really well, really well, you simultaneously get to know everybody. The scripture says there is no temptation which is not common to all people, to man. So when you get to know one, you're getting to know everybody. And it, it, that level of intimacy prepares you to want to have that kind of intimacy with more. Because you've experienced it. You, want, you crave that kind of, of realness in a relationship. So you lean into the possibility of a greater intimacy. How long did it take Jesus to tell the woman at the well everything she had ever done? She knew her, and she went back to town and said, Come meet a man that knows me. And so there's this sense of, in Christ, there's this sense of depth that takes place relationally that can expand beyond what you think of in a natural sense. You can have more deep friends than, than, than you think you can. You really can. There can be that type of community around you where I go, I love that person, I love that person, I love that person. It's more than a feeling. It's reality. That can be your that can be your truth. And um, I think it expands dramatically. There's a synergy in it. So, and, and that's the other thing I, I, would, I, would, I would, well. <clears throat> so, why is this important? One is, if you want to love God, you love people. All right? That's the way you love God. All right? That's the primary way you love God. Two is, <clears throat> the way, um, you know, one can chase a, a one can, this is an op, op, uh, kind of opaque, um, oblique, uh, mysterious verse in Deuteronomy 30. It says, one can chase a thousand, but two can chase, in the natural you'd think, two thousand. But it says, two can chase ten thousand. There's this synergy that takes place that, when, that just goes beyond the natural when you really lock arms with somebody. I was, uh, I was speaking to the uh, Liberty High School football team. Uh, the coach there is a good buddy of mine. And uh, they had a pretty talented team. And I had just gotten back from this, uh, from this conference in Tanzania. So I taught on this word Ubuntu. This was interesting. So I am because we are. I says, if you guys go into your season not just concerned about your own stats, but if you just take on somebody else that you care about, their stats, their feelings, their identity, how they're doing, how they're functioning on the team, if you care about one other person as much as you care about yourself, and that happens on a team-wide basis, there's no telling what this team can do. You know, I'm just going crazy on this. You know, just what would happen if you actually were a team? You know, and... uh, 
So they do well, and they, they get into the playoffs, and they, invite, and they put Ubuntu on their practice jerseys, and they break every huddle with Ubuntu. And then they invite me to their uh, playoff games, and I'm standing on the sidelines, and they win, and they circle me, and they put their helmets in the air, and they're all yelling, Ubuntu, you know, and I'm Mr. Ubuntu, and it's just really cool, and, you know. And then, and then they, um, they keep winning, and they go to the, the semifinals, and the coach comes out at halftime. They're playing Bellevue. It's sideways rain. It's a terrible night. And Bellevue's really good. And um, <clears throat> Bellevue. So um, the coach comes up to me and he says, uh, can you hear what the crowd's yelling? Uh, I said, no. He says, well, listen. Okay, I'll listen. And, the, and so here's the sidelines. thousand people. Huge group of people. And one section ye- is yelling, I am. And the other section is yelling, because we are. I am. The whole community had been impacted by this idea that what would happen if I really meant that? That it's not about me, it's about us. I'm an us. I'm not a me. I'm part of something bigger than me. I'm part of something where I'm defined. What, see, I want, I want to actually mean this. What happens to my friends happens to me. If they are happy, I'm impacted by that. If they hurt, I really hurt. It's not superficial to say that. I want that for my life. I want God to work that into my soul. That I am part of something bigger than my little universe. I am part of a deep connection of friendship. And we live that kind of community. Really do it. What would happen to this world? It's amazing. Jesus is saying, all the world will know that you're my disciples if you do this. He doesn't say, You'll, they'll all know you're my disciples if you stand on the corner and wave banners. John 3.16. They'll all know that something's different by the quality of your relationships. I really want this. You know, and here's the other thing about this. This is really fascinating. Um, you change by the people you're with. We think we're going to change because the Holy Spirit's going to come on us and sprinkle a little dust on us, and all of a sudden we're going to go, patience, I've got it. And I've got all this neat stuff. I think the Holy Spirit changes. Don't get me wrong. But I noted in my life that it's the people I'm with that really have the influence on me. For instance, I live up here. I've lived up here for seven or eight years. I've become close friends with some of you know the Lee, Skip, Skip Lee. I've grown to love Skip. Skip's one of my best friends. I love that brother. He's a remarkable man. You know what? Skip's lo- Skip loves literature. You know what I'm reading? I'm reading Victorian literature. I'm reading George Eliot. I've read everything George Eliot wrote. George Eliot. You kidding me? Skip Lee. <laughs> Wouldn't have done it without my friend who loves Victorian literature, and he got me into it. I can think of a bunch of these. Um, Steve Petermeyer, you know the Petermeyers. Steve was the first person I did this with. The two sons, you know, Brian and, and uh, Kevin. I'm doing Kevin's wedding on Saturday. So um, I go to Hawaii with Steve this last year. I go to Hawaii every no, – don't have to tell you that. I go to Hawaii, and I'm going with Steve this last year. Guess what I'm doing this last year? Steve's there. I'm surfing. I'm surfing because Steve is there. 
Steve's crazy. I'm 60. I don't know. I mean, it's like, what am I doing? I'm doing it because my friend. See? You know, one of the most poignant moments for the, me is I, uh, there was a time in my life when I realized I did not have much uh, racial understanding or, or diversity understanding in my life. So I began to pray that God would uh, plant a dear, dear African-American friend in my life because I didn't have an African-American friend that I really, 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 really loved and walked with. Okay, so I asked God to, to give me one African-American friend, and he did. And so this guy was a New York cop who became a, a pretty influential speaker for Young Life. And uh, Bill Page is his name. And Bill's just a great brother. So I'm traveling with Bill, and we're hanging out. And I love this brother. Spent a lot of time with him. So I'm in a restaurant in Miami with Bill Page. And uh, we're talking and hanging out. And the waitress comes up, comes up to us, and she asked me. She goes, sir, are you, are you ready to order? I said, no, no, I haven't, we haven't even looked. So, yeah, come back. And, and, I, and Bill's looking at me. She goes away, and he goes, hey, Jeff, tell me something. I go, yeah, okay, what? He goes, am I invisible? I said, no, I can see you. You're right there. You haven't vanished. He goes, okay, I'm just checking. And I said, what was that? Waitress comes back, to, asks me. Sir, are you ready to order? All of a sudden, I go. She leaves. I said, no, we're not ready. I said, I'm sorry, Bill. I didn't get it. I said, you live with that all the time, don't you? And he goes, yeah, I'm just curious if you noticed. And I said, if she comes up and does that again, we're leaving. She did. We stood up and walked out. Now, I did not change because I read all kinds of books on what it's like to be black in America. My heart was grabbed because I got close to another brother who suffered, and I began to sense and know his world. Therefore, I changed. We change by our relationships. We become more of who we are, who God created us to be. It expands us dramatically. And so... You don't just grow by going into your closet and asking God to change you. You pray for laborers. God, grant me these kind of people in my life that I might walk with them and know them and care for them and let your community expand you. And lastly, I think the power of this, of this idea of covenant relationships is that it gives witness to the living God. And a lot of people want to give witness to God, but this is the greatest way. Um, <clears throat> I came across this um, this story. It's a story um, of two brothers. I just think this is a beautiful story. And it tells what happens when you love somebody else and how the world takes note. It goes like this. It's a... It's actually a Jewish story. The time, time before time, when the world was young, two brothers shared a field and a mill. Each night, dividing evenly the grain they had ground together during the day. One brother lived alone. The other had a wife and a large family. Now, the single brother thought to himself one day, it isn't really fair that we divide the grain evenly. I have only myself to care for, but my brother has children to feed. So each night, he secretly took some of his grain to his brother's granary to see that he was never without. 
But the married brother said to himself one day, it isn't really fair that we divide the grain evenly because I have children to provide for me in my old age, but my brother has no one. What will he do when he's old? So every night he secretly took some of the grain to his brother's granary. As a result, both of them always found their supply of grain mysteriously replenished each morning. Then one night they met each other halfway between their two houses, suddenly realized what had been happening and embraced each other in love. The story is that God witnessed their meeting and proclaimed, this is a holy place, a place of love. And here it is that my temple shall be built. And so it was, the holy place where God is made known to his people is the place where human beings discover each other in love. God is made known through this. People are waiting for the real thing, and the real thing has to do with the way we love our friends. If you can't love your friends, then how are you going to love those people that you don't know? All right, so it starts with who you do know. Start practicing that kind of love, and it is a decision. Now, I want to, I want to, I want to um, end with... Um, this is, again, this is repetitive for some of you because I've, I've talked with you about this. But um, I'll use baseball as, a, as, a, as an example. I'm not a great baseball fan, neither am I a great baseball player um, because I was so bad at it. I, I, uh, I struck out four times in one game, you know, without swinging. I just scared of the ball. So, uh, so here's, the, here's, the, here's the deal about understanding what this covenant commitment is about, and I'll try to be quick, but this is very practical, and it will help you, hopefully. The first thing about, if you think about intimacy being going all the way around the bases and coming to a point of intimacy, then the, the very first thing about making that happen is you've got to be willing to get in the batter, batter's box, which means you've got to be willing to get hurt. A lot of people are not willing to get in the batter's box in these relationships because it's been painful in the past. They've gotten beamed. Something's moving very fast and can hurt you. So it takes courage to play this game of relationships because any time you put yourself in a place of loving somebody, you by nature, by definition, are putting yourself in a vulnerable place. So you have to make that decision at some point to say, am I willing to get hurt again maybe? Okay, so you, that's the first step is that just get in the batter's box. Okay, uh, and that means you're willing to play, you're willing to, to initiate. You're willing to start this thing. Now, first base, the way first base works is it's simply this. You know, you start a relationship simply by sharing stories. First base is, is simply history sharing. Let me tell you about me. I want to hear about you. And it goes in a kind of like an onion in layers, so you don't start with somebody saying, hey, hey, I'd like to get to know you. Can you tell me your worst sin? You know, you don't start there. And you don't start with, how do you really, you know, what's the worst thing that ever happened to you and your parents? What you, your, you know, it's, no. You talk about your, what your interests are. And you just ask questions relative to your life, and you share personalness about yourself. You share the story of who you are. A lot of times for the church, I love just hearing people's story about how they come to faith. Or tell me about your family. Or why are you interested in what you do? Or why did you choose to live there? Or can we, you know, and you're always asking permission to ask. Would you mind if I ask a couple questions? I'm curious about this. 
and you're being very polite about it, and you're not being pushy, and, you, and if you ever feel like you're going too far, back up. But as long as there's an entree there, take an interest in somebody. I'm interested in you. Tell me about you. I want to know you. Yeah, it's just not that hard. Just ask questions. Okay, so that's first base. Second base is when you get to know somebody well enough to genuinely affirm them. You know, there's something incredibly powerful about affirmation, about encouragement. You know, Mark Twain, the great author, the great author of the 18th century, he said, or the 19th century, he said, um, I can live a whole month on one good compliment. You ever feel that way? Where somebody knows you really well and they say something into your heart that you go, that's true about me. That felt so good. We are desperate for those kind of words. It's really easy to go, hey, you're the best. Love you. You know, go get them, Tiger. You know, we can do that, right? And we're good at that. It's kind of fun, superficial, though. But when somebody really gets you and they speak it into your life, man, that's powerful. The Scripture says, encourage one another daily as long as it is called today. I've never been in a day that hasn't been called today. All right? So I'm supposed to be doing that today. And the word encourage, the word cure, it's not a beer. It's a French word that means heart. It means to enhearten somebody. It means to get into their life in such a way that you give them a little heart massage. And you say, I really think this is special about you. Man, that's cool. I just love that about you. When you and you can say that with the greatest sincerity and the greatest enthusiasm. I love this about you. You're so, you know, that's so great. I think, here's the deal. Everybody's a genius. Everybody's got gifts. And when you love to discover that, you pull it out of people and you affirm them. Oh, man, we are what people have said about us. You know, we sticks and stones may break my bones, but words will never harm me. Are you kidding? Words kill me, and words also give me life. So we affirm. We get to know somebody because we care. We take an interest. We're not just telling our story. We want to know what's what they're made of, what they love, what they do, why they do it. And then we affirm. We get the second base. We're still not at intimacy. Third base is when you start to make covenants. And a covenant just is simply a simple little promise. It doesn't have to be this big formal thing. It's something like, hey, I, I, I'd love to meet again. I'd love to keep meeting. I'd love this to just kind of hang out with you. Let's, you know, it's some form of commitment. It's the DTR of every relationship. Are we in? Are we doing this? You can do that with not just boyfriend, girlfriend. We think, I think that's what I'm trying to say to you. You can go into that with other friends and say, I care about you, and I want this relationship to continue. And I want to make a little covenant with you that I'll be faithful in that. Now, you don't do that quickly, and you're not doing it because you're needy. The Holy Spirit really needs to lead you in this. But it's powerful when it takes place. Because then your relationships aren't based on proximity and they're not based on shared interests. They will weather the test of time simply because you made that decision. Don't underestimate the power of decision. 
Somebody told me early on in my dating thing that I wasn't supposed to have premarital sex. It worked. I, was like, I made a decision. I simply said, not doing it. Not going not gonna to go there. Want to. Want to a lot. Think about it a lot. It'd be great. Not doing it. It was a simple decision. So I didn't have to wait until I got in a private place and in bed with somebody to figure out, now am I going to do this or not? Made a decision. Had huge impl- implications in my life. I'm really grateful that took place. Same thing. I mean, don't underestimate the power of your will. The will is at the core of who you are. You can make these decisions. And they will have huge impact in your life. So... That's a covenant, and it can happen in your life. And then notice home base is intimacy. Now, a lot of people want to get to intimacy without going through the covenant, and it doesn't work. And they want to, they th- and that's one of the reasons sex apart from covenant actually breaks people up. It, it actually tears up relationships because it's too powerful of an act apart from covenant. All right, And so we have to protect these things. And that's why intimacy follows covenant. And that's why Jesus is very clear and the, and the scripture is very clear. Don't, don't, don't go there. That's designed for covenant. That's not designed for just hooking up. All right. So, so think about it. You can have these kind of relationships by starting with, first, by first of all, being willing to get hurt, getting in the, in the batter's box, Secondly, learning to take an interest in sharing stories, sharing history, learning from those histories to genuinely affirm, and then coming to a point of saying, hey, let's, let's, let's be friends, let's, let's carry on. And then intimacy is, is, is the result of that as, as it goes through life. And, it, and wouldn't it be great, I mean, honestly, wouldn't it be great at the end of your life to just have a whole community of people that you have loved and they have loved you, and it hasn't been dependent upon just the proximity issues or the shared interest issues. It's been a whole lifetime of building these relationships. The world will take notice um, if that takes place, and it can, and it should in our lives. So um, take this love thing seriously. Learn it. Because Paul said, you can speak with the tongues of men and angels and have not love. You are nothing but a noisy symbol you can give your body to be burned. You can understand all mysteries. You can move mountains with your faith. If you have not love, it counts for nothing. 